This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Always trying to be slick when they tell us, tell us they're responsible for sending young men tonight. We have waited so long for someone to come along and correct our conscience wrong, but the wait's been too long. Hello. And welcome back to the Codger Journal. I'm Joseph, and my guest today is Professor Gerald Horn. He's a historian and a professor of history and African American studies at the University of Houston. He's the author of many books, and we've interviewed him uh, for this program before on NATO and white supremacy. Today, we'll be discussing his book and his research on the Counter Revolution of 1776. Professor, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for being here. And Professor, I want to just begin by contextualizing our discussion today of the white supremacist counter-revolution of the United States and its project. We're discussing this again in the aftermath of yet another publicized incident of police assassination and brutality uh, and white supremacist violence in this country, uh, the murder of Tyree Nichols in Memphis. And I, I say that just to contextualize the discussion that this is a, I think, as you show in your research, the culmination of the American project of the counter-revolution uh, of the settler society. So I want to just begin by asking you, how do you see this culmination and the sort of uh, long durée of the American counter-revolution now extending into 2023 uh, of this project of counter-revolution to protect slavery, to protect white supremacy, and why do you believe it's so difficult for people, even on the left, to understand that that anti-blackness that's at the core of the American project? Well, I'm glad you mentioned that last point in particular, because many of our friends on the left have not bathed themselves in glory in terms of understanding the founding of this slaveholders republic. In fact, even though they like to hear this, to some extent, they're to the right of certain elements of the ruling class because they remind me of, of biologists who refused to accept the findings in the early 1950s of DNA. They prefer the pre-1950s understanding of biology. Right. And so they have these ancient, archaic, antiquated views of the founding of the United States uh, and have not kept up with the literature. Right. Not only have not, not, not kept up with the literature, They've abandoned their battle station. Right. They're always telling us that they're class warriors. And they're always uh, reproaching those they see immersed in identity politics. Mm -hmm. Well, the class of enslaved were unpaid workers. Why should unpaid workers engage in class collaboration with their so-called masters, the slaveholders, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, uh, Patrick Henry, James Madison, 
in revolting against British rule when many had reason to believe that the underlying rationale for the revolt was A, to counterman and countervail London's policy enunciated in 1762-63 with the so-called Royal Proclamation of expressing displeasure continuing to move west fighting Native Americans so that land speculator number one, George Washington, could profit, which then would number two lead to the importation of more enslaved Africans. And despite the recent remarks by Governor DeSantis of Florida and, and some of his collaborators in certain universities who will go unmentioned, there was abolitionist there was an abolitionist movement before 1776 particularly amongst the enslaved they they were the original abolitionists and they were campaigning relentlessly against abolition and so just because the settler class across class lines oftentimes collaborated going back as i pointed out in my 16th century book to the 1580s when london first dispatched uh, potential settlers to what they called North Carolina of various class backgrounds sponsored by the 1% uh, all determined to grab the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, which was, of course, the land of the Native Americans. Now, I won't quarrel with those who, even with those on the left, believe it or not, even though they won't admit it, but they're basically endorsing class collaboration amongst European settlers. Okay, fine. That, that's what you want to do. Go right ahead. But to extend this to the enslaved Africans, the unpaid workers, is utterly ridiculous. And it is obviously contradicted by the subsequent course of U.S. history, where by the 1790s, you had the United States nationals in control of the slave trade to Cuba by the 1840s, in control of the slave trade to the biggest market of all, speaking of Brazil, by 1860, 1861, enslaved Africans are the most valuable property in these United States of America. The population of the enslaved had expanded from the late 18th century of where there was the hundreds of thousands to about 4 million by 1860-61. And this is supposedly <laughs> in this country uh, that uh, privileges abolition. Well, I would hate to see what would have happened if, if they had priv privileged uh, anti-abolition, which is, of course, what they did. And so when you, when you see this uh, obscenity on tape coming from Memphis, Tennessee, it's the ultimate culmination of a policy whereby those who were most likely to revolt against the slaveholders' republic, speaking of the enslaved, were destined for liquidation. And what's remarkable is that even you have mainstream has, has acknowledged this, even though the left has not. That's what's so mind blowing. Uh, for example, you may recall that uh, a few years ago, there was a Pulitzer Prize winning history book entitled The Internal Enemy. Guess who the internal enemy was? It's us, Black people. And this is a book dealing with Virginia from the late 18th century up until about, I don't know, 1830. 
And so, as I said, these people on the left, they, they haven't kept up with the literature. They And and then you have to wonder why they haven't kept up with the literature. Now, let's be frank. We're mostly talking about the Euro-American left, because in terms of my being rebuked and reprimanded and called a, a racist centralist and a, and a traitor and a monarchist, uh, et cetera, including being a so-called apologist for uh, the Windsor family in London, since the George Washington company could not have triumphed, uh, but for the assistance of French royalists, I guess they're apologists for royalists in France. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, it's so maddening because we ha we're headed relentlessly towards fascism. And one of the reasons is because of an inability of some of our friends on the left to understand the terrain on which they're reputedly struggling and to put out a line that will capture the imagination of the most oppressed in the first instance, which obviously they're not doing. And the response from many on the left to this killing in Memphis, uh, which I think has been abhorrent, some using it as a justification for their class reductionist ideology by pointing to the fact that police officers involved in the killing were black and almost using this as a talking point to say, look, as, as you said, all this identity politics is distracting us from the real issue. It's just class. And I think, as you've pointed out, oftentimes a fundamental misunderstanding of the anti-blackness in the American project leads people to this conclusion that it's just simple enough to say, oh, the, the true problem is class. It, we, we have to not be distracted by race in any capacity. Well, what's interesting is that <clears throat> the Memphis authorities have thrown the book at these officers. Interestingly enough, the LA so-called police union has endorsed that. <clears throat> now, of course, the LA so-called police union, uh, hold your breath until you see them endorse the killing of a black person or black and brown person in the city of angels because those are mostly uh, conducted and perpetrated uh, by officers of European descent. And of course, you recall what happened in Minnesota a few years ago when an officer of Somali ancestry uh, was accused and tried and convicted of killing this woman of Australian descent, European descent. Of course, they threw the book at him too. So, why do our why do these folks on the left they ignore that particular aspect, which is obviously racist and white supremacist? I, I, you would be not misleading if you suggested that perhaps they're comfortable with white supremacy. They're comfortable with white privilege, and you know it goes to that old saying: you can't expect a person to uh, contradict or to attack what's feathering their own nest. And what's even more remarkable, as I said, is that they, they throw their own ideology out the window. And not only do they not look at enslaved Africans as a class, you know, <laughs> it's a contradiction. They're always talking about too much race, but when it comes to unpaid workers as a class, they ignore class. I mean, the whole, the whole thing is a little nutty if you think about it for a second, but it's not nutty. It, it's, it's basically an elaborate rationale to justify 
and exonerate white supremacy. Uh, and as I said, they're doing this while paying scant attention to the literature. I, I hope none of these people are, are academics, because if so, they're engaged in malpractice. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, and, and I think that the it's still kind of sticks within this trend we've seen recently of a rise of so-called patriotic socialism, uh, that being a, a phenomenon. I mean, it's hard to even utter those words and not laugh and think how ridiculous that sounds. But this exoneration of the American project and the and I, I think the blindness to its core features from the very beginning, I, I really appreciated there was an interview with Democracy Now! where you made the direct comparison of the American counter-revolution to the Declaration of Independence of Rhodesia and made that explicit connection of the two settler white supremacist projects where some socialists in America would say, oh, they know Rhodesia was a problem or apartheid is a problem, but they would not you know cast the same lens on the american system so it is a sort of cognitive dissonance to not see the continuity of settler white supremacist counter-revolution globally and not just in the 20th century but in the 18th century as well well what's even more striking is this failure to do a global analysis and, and once again for people on the left i had thought that internationalism was a core principle, like I had thought that class analysis was a class principle. Uh, class analysis was a prime principle, just as I had thought uh, materialist analysis was a prime principle. But once again, all that is thrown out the window when it comes to supporting and venerating uh, this slaveholders' republic. I mean, for example, you mentioned Rhodesia in 1965, where the white supremacists said explicitly they were walking in the footsteps of 1776. And, and by the way, uh, I was talking to some uh, indigenous activists uh, from North America recently. You can probably find that discussion on the Activist News Network. And I used the way that the conflict in Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, was settled as a possible model or how to resolve the conflict in the United States, i.e. roundtable talks, the Lancaster House talks, where the original colonizing power, London, comes back into the fray, perhaps with other colonizing powers, such as Spain, which had been the colonizing power in Florida and Texas, the second and third largest states, and then coming to some sort, sort of resolution. Uh, similarly, they are apparently ignorant of the settlers' revolt in Algeria, uh, 1950s up to independence in 1962, quite bloody, by the way. And similarly, with regard to the Declaration of Independence, in terms of studying the hemisphere, they really should look at the Uruguayan uh, Declaration of Independence in 1825, which explicitly castigates enslavement of Africans, whereas, you know, uh, in 1776, there's this shillyish shallying around, around the question of enslavement, with actually London being blamed, which leaves the slaveholders, uh, lets them off the hook, because supposedly they didn't have any hand in either delivering enslavement or perpetuating slavery. And so if you look at Mexico, for example, 
with a president of African descent uh, almost 200 years ago, uh, who, of course, uh, executed the abolition of slavery circa 1828-29, which, of course, then led to the Settlers' Revolt in Texas right. by 1836, as that form of Mexican province uh, secedes. And uh, if you look at the book by uh, George Reed Andrews of University of Pittsburgh, I, I interview him. You may know that I do these interviews on the Pacifica Station in Los Angeles, kpfk.org, uh, Saturdays, 11 a.m., Pacific, although the interviews can be found on the Activist News Network as well. And in his book, he, of course, implicitly uh, really does this invidious comparison of independent struggles south of the border compared to the United States. South of the border, uh, for the most part, even though Africans had uh, different differing evaluations of their class interests, uh, oftentimes they sided with those like Simon Bolivar, who flip-flops after being lobbied by independent Haiti and decides to incorporate abolitionism uh, into his program. The same for Jose San Martin, for example. Whereas we know that in North America, by several orders of magnitude, you have more Black people uh, fighting uh, for the royalists than fighting for the uh, slaveholders in North America. And of course, this is dealt with in a movie that I recommend, funded by Canadian Broadcasting, South African Broadcasting, and BET, Black Entertainment Television, entitled The Book of Negroes. You can find it all over the place. It's a remarkable scene in that dramatization of where enslaved Africans confront George Washington uh, about his uh, enslaving proclivities. Uh, it's one of the most dramatic scenes of so-called Americana that one can conjure. So once again, uh, it, it's quite disappointing, to put it mildly, that uh, many of our friends on the left are unable to do a class analysis, do a materialist analysis, and oftentimes revert to sloganeering, <laughs> like identity politics. And, and that term identity politics is very curious, because I pointed out in many of my works, this that's all identity of whiteness. It, it's, it's, it's utterly constructed. And it's a militarized identity politics, because you had those who were warring on the shores of Europe, English versus Irish, Protestant versus Catholic, Christian versus Jewish, British versus uh, German, German versus Pole, Pole versus Russian, Serb versus Croat, Northern Italian versus Southern Italian. All of a sudden, when they cross the Atlantic, magically, they adopt this new identity in the politics of identity, identity politics, by the way, uh, known as whiteness and a maneuver that would make Madison Avenue blush. And of course, the reason for it is that uh, it, it helps to solidify a block to go after the Native Americans and their land and to repress the Africans. And then that, of course, is embodied in this holy constitution in the Second Amendment, uh, which, of course, is the utter, which is the ultimate uh, undergirding of these mass shootings that are as frequent as uh, mushrooms after a spring rain, uh, because the Second Amendment was designed to put arms in the hands of the settlers, the Europeans, 
in order that they could better repress enslaved Africans in, in revolt or Native Americans. And of course, the turning point with regard to this uh, utterly reprehensible system uh, comes with the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804, uh, since C.L.R. James published his book, The Black Jacobins, in the 1930s. I guess they haven't read that one either. Mm -hmm. uh, we have gotten a sense that the Haitian Revolution ignited a general crisis of the entire slave system that could only be resolved with its collapse, which begins to happen, interestingly enough, in Latin America, with regard to Mexico in the late 1820s and a good deal of its southern neighbors in the 1850s, certainly without the bloodshed that accompanies the uh, abolition process in North America, culminating in 1865. So, oh my goodness, uh, it, it, it's just so disappointing. Thank you, Professor. And my, my last question uh, would just be your advice or your recommendation to young radicals, young leftists who are who perhaps went through 2020 and were radicalized by the protests against the murder of George Floyd now are experiencing perhaps a similar opportunity to be politicized, to be active, but are being influenced by these manifold forces that are telling them the objective has to stay on, you know, the generic white working class union struggle rather than these opportunities to practice police abolition, prison abolition, uh, you know, as you mentioned, indigenous struggle, they're being manipulated and led away from these opportunities because they're being told that class, this universal white thing uh, is the more important thing. And I just wonder what you would what you would say to someone who's young and, and wants to get involved, but feels perhaps being torn from multiple directions uh, away from really the centrality of the issue that is the American project uh, and it, all of its reactionary uh, destruction in a global in a global sense and, and in the United States. Uh, so, yeah, I just wonder what your advice would be. Well, <laughs> to reiterate. To repeat, class is not just a white thing. <laughs> as, as a matter of fact, uh, not only were enslaved Africans a segment of the working class, albeit an unpaid segment of the working class, their descendants, the black American population is about 90, 95% working class. Oftentimes tend to be more pro-union than their erstwhile comrades in the working class. So first of all, they need there needs to be a reconfiguration, uh, a different conceptualization of what class means. <laughs> that seems to be step one. And step two, of course, is to see, and I, I think that many of us would agree with regard to this, I hope, that uh, racism and its close cousin, white supremacy, or stumbling blocks or barriers to working class unity. And that if we adopt the old slogan of an injury to one is an injury to all, when we see a young worker like Mr. Nichols slain in Tennessee, we should see that as an injury to all. And without all of this 
propaganda about since the officers are black, that means race is not involved. Although, of course, these officers are hired to uphold the white supremacist system. And, exactly. and, and once again, if people knew their history, they would know that one of the reasons why some of the major slave rebellions did not succeed, speaking of Gabriel's Revolt in Virginia, 1800 Richmond, Denmark Vesey 200 years ago in South Carolina, the list is long, is because they were betrayed by uh, other uh, enslaved parties. And so, because they were basically uh, honoring a system, albeit a system uh, that held them in thrall, just like these officers who killed Mr. Nichols were defending a system. Uh, they were defending white supremacy. They were defending capitalism. They were defending anti-blackness. I mean, next week on the aforementioned Freedom Now program on KPFK, actually the guys from your neighborhood, uh, University of Rochester professor, uh, Nicholas okay. Bloom, who's going to talk about his research on the 1811 in revolt of the enslaved in southern Louisiana, the largest revolt in the history of the United States, which was repressed in part by a militia comprised of free men of color. And so, oh God, let, 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 me, let, let me allow you to intervene before I hyperventilate. No problem, Well, Thank you so much, Professor. Well, thank you for inviting me.